MSW Media. Stop the pressure! Welcome to the Daily Beans listeners. As you can tell from my voice, this is not AG, not even with a bad head cold. This is Greg Oliar, host of Prevail, filling in last second with the intro. AG is not able to make the show. She's absolutely fine. She will be back on Monday. She asked me to give you a quick little introduction. Then in instead of the Daily Beans, we're going to run Prevail. I feel a little bad because she picked a heck of a day to miss. I mean, so much news going on. But any kind of analysis of the bombshell report that Putin and his cronies did, in fact, have a secret meeting to plot how they were going to screw with our election, that's going to have to wait till Monday. It's just going to have to wait. Um, and that's okay, because I'm sure that between now and then, there's going to be even more stuff that's going to come out that's going to be even more demanding of AG's awesome expert analysis. So, meantime... She sends her love, and now, Prevail. Дамы и господа, это Prevail, и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a terrific show today. Arthur Snell is here. He was for years a diplomat with the British Foreign Office, posting in all kinds of far-flung places, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Yemen, and then Afghanistan and Iraq before heading to Trinidad and Tobago. He left the Foreign Office and joined a company called Orbis Business Intelligence, where he's a managing director. Now, you know about Orbis Business Intelligence because that's where Christopher Steele works. So... Arthur is a wealth of knowledge. He's just knows so much about so many different things. This is a, I just finished listening to it. And I'm, I'm really geeked for you guys to hear it just because he knows so much stuff because he's been all over. The first part of the interview, I just ask him questions about British politics, just as a dumb American that I'm curious about. And he was patient enough to answer my, my questions. Then we get into his career and the various places he's been. We talk about Afghanistan and Iraq a lot and the Gulf Wars and stuff like that. And then in the last part of the interview, we do cover uh, Orbis and we talk about Chris Steele and the dossier. And I know I say the word interesting a lot and I say the word fascinating a lot. I'm in listening to these every time I, I say those two words, I feel like there should be a drinking game where if you take a shot of whiskey or something, every time I say either interesting or fascinating, you'll be passed out before the end of the podcast. But Arthur Snell really is interesting, really is fascinating. This really is an interesting, fascinating interview. So I'm going to stop talking so that we can get right to it. We'll be right back with Arthur Snell. This is CNN Breaking News. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Tudin, Senior Legal Analyst at CNN. As you may have heard, I'm back on TV now, eight months after getting caught masturbating during a Zoom call. I know what you're thinking. Why was the camera pointed at my junk and not my face? And what was so stimulating in that Zoom call that compelled me to do that right then and there? Are the New Yorker staff writers really so arousing? And seriously, why wasn't the camera on my face? Well, now that I have my TV job back, I can almost certainly guarantee I will not be exposing myself like that again. 
I can say this with some confidence. I mean, it's extremely unlikely it will happen again. So you don't have to sit there watching me, wondering where my hands are and if I'm going to give my magic lamp a little rub. It's totally fine. In other news, my publisher has announced that subsequent editions of my book about the Supreme Court, The Nine, will now be titled The Three and a Half. This is Jeffrey Tubin, CNN, and now back to Prevail. Arthur Snell, welcome to Prevail. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very excited to talk to you because you've had such a, an interesting career, but we're going to get to that in a minute. What I, what I want to start the interview doing, stuff is happening in, uh, across the pond in Great Britain that Americans like me don't quite grasp. And I'm hoping that you can just help me clear up some things and talk to me as if I'm a complete moron who knows nothing and explain some things. Um, I'll, I'll do my best, but uh, it's always um, British people always make the mistake of assuming that Americans, you know, are, are morons. And of course, you're the guys who put a man on the moon. So, you know, we did. We did. We did that. And I think we invented the Internet and reality. A few TV. other things. A few other things. Yeah. We invented reality TV. We get demerits for that. So, <laughs> OK, the first the first question involves prime ministers. OK, so going back to the 70s. Most British prime ministers have been conservative, with only Tony Blair and Gordon Brown being Labour. So, okay, so there's Margaret Thatcher, John Major, David Cameron, Theresa May, and now Boris mm. Johnson. So what I'm curious about is how various British prime ministers are perceived, both in general among the population and by you personally. Okay, so, well... Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, it's probably a bit like US presidents. Of course, we don't have term limits. So if a prime minister is good at winning elections, they can go on forever. But you kind of have the big league and the little league. And just as you know, Ronald Reagan is, is, is a huge figure in the 1980s in US politics, whatever side of the, the aisle you might be, you know, Margaret Thatcher is very obviously for us in the UK, kind of an equivalent figure. Now, she's a very different character. Clearly, she didn't come from that kind of entertainment. You know, she wasn't she wasn't a, a, a popular figure. She didn't have a particularly kind of uh, pleasant manner with the ordinary folk, but she was a big figure bestriding the Cold War era in the 1980s. And then you had perhaps the next big figure in US politics was obviously Bill Clinton. We had Tony Blair. There, were, there weren't exactly at the same time, but they were very similar in the, in the respect that they were from the left, but people who, who moved the left party into the center ground, highly electorally um, successful. I mean, Tony Blair in particular, I don't think was capable of losing election. He was kind of like Bill Clinton without the sex scandals. He had a phenomenal connection with the public he, he knew how to kind of capture the politics of aspiration, but combine that with kind of social conscience, with broadening um, social programs and so on. And of course, Tony Blair's Achilles heel was the war in Iraq. And yes. again, uh, that, that links the US and the UK's politics because Tony Blair felt, and I think he felt this particularly as a left-wing uh, prime Minister in the UK, that he had to stand very close to a Republican president in the US, particularly in the context of a national security crisis, as you saw in the light of 9-11. So 
if it had not been for the war in Iraq and the kind of disastrous unfolding of that, you know, Tony Blair might still be prime minister now. I mean, seriously, he 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 was somebody who um, consistently showed an ability to understand what the British people wanted and how to kind of position kind of center ground politics. So we can blame George W. Bush for Tony Blair not being prime minister right now. Okay, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm willing, that, I'm willing that to do and that. all the other stuff. Yeah, and I think yeah. it, it's probably fair to say that since Blair, uh, we've had a series of slightly kind of second tier. Uh, leaders, you know, that's where perhaps our paths have diverged as a country. We've never had somebody like President Obama who came from a minority community and, and came to national leadership. David Cameron, very privileged. Again, he was kind of Blair for the for the conservatives, you know, our, our sort of GOP equivalent. He tried to pull that party to the centre, but ultimately his his leadership exploded over the Europe question. Theresa May, Gordon Brown, very short uh, periods at the top. And now we have Boris Johnson, Britain Trump. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not just the hairstyle. He has, um, he's seen quite a lot across the pond, which he likes politically, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of people, particularly people on the liberal side of politics, whether in, in the US or the UK, they look at voter suppression, they look at culture wars, they look at, um, you know, intimidation of the judiciary, and they say, we, we wouldn't want that in our politics. But British conservatives are looking across the pond to North America, seeing those things and saying, oh, there's something we can learn from this. And, and that's, that's kind of where we are in 2021 in British politics. So Boris Johnson is apparently good friends with this Russian oligarch who owns, I think, the London Evening Standard, and he's got the Palazzo in the Umbrian Hills of Italy, and he used to go there back in his days when he was a bachelor and kind of enjoy himself at parties. So there's a lot of speculation that the Russians have something on this guy. So I was going to ask you what it feels like to have a leader compromised by Russia. But uh, being an American, I already know. So I've got no question. <laughs> you, you've been there and done that. I mean, the thing is, you guys, you, you're always bigger and better, you know. <laughs> now, he just got married, right? Johnson did. So He did. I, I've seen her name before. It's Carrie Simmons. How does it, how's it pronounced? Simmons? Uh, it's Carrie Simmons. But she she has, um, I think, very publicly taken her husband's name. So she's now Mrs. Carrie Johnson. So what, where does she fit into all this? Like, is she a left-wing person? Because she's like an environmentalist or is she, I, I'm having problems figuring that out. Yeah. So what, one thing where the, the, the right-wing in, British politics has diverged from the US is that on the climate change question, most British conservatives are in the kind of scientific mainstream. So the Paris Accords, you know, very few people in Britain would question the need to sign up to that. The whole thing that we might see uh, this week, we're talking mid-June now, in terms of the G7, the push towards net zero major world economies, uh, moving away from hydrocarbons. All that has been adopted by our Conservative Party, our, our right-wing political party. So Mrs. Carrie Johnson, the, the, the new wife, the third wife of our Prime Minister, uh, she, she's an environmentalist, but as a, as a political activist, she's been involved with the Conservative Party her entire adult life. She's, she's still, I think, in her 30s. She's a relatively young woman. So in that regard, she's not 
outside the mainstream of the conservative movement in British politics. And, and I think there is something in British conservatism which is quite tied to the land. You, as you know, you know we're, we're an old country. We have these rich families who've owned property for centuries through the generations. So I think there's a degree to which some parts of environmentalism in Britain fit quite easily with a kind of conservative idea of stewardship of the land and, and this kind of, you know, historic resonances. We used to have that here, too, with, with the Republicans. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was a big con conservationist, and then right. somehow that fell away, and now they just want to burn as much oil as possible and burn it down, <laughs> I guess. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't really... I don't really understand. Um, oh, I didn't. I didn't even write this down. But now talking about it, I forgot. What's the deal with this Nigel Farage guy? I mean, he's is he a does, do people know that he's a joke or do people follow this guy because he seems like a big you know fraudster to me? I, I don't know. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's a very intriguing character. So Nigel Farage, he was outside the Conservative Party, but he was like the populist right wing flank to the right of of the mainstream Tories. And, and I, I don't know, you know, the, the US equivalent might be sort of characters like Ross Perot or people like that who ran to the right of the Republicans. And I guess over time, the, the Republicans, you know, Donald Trump was your candidate in, in the Republican Party. So in that sense, the Republican Party successfully kind of brought those people in. Now, Nigel Farage, you know, his big thing was getting the UK out of Europe and very much uh, when I say out of Europe, out of the European Union, right. and very much driven by an agenda that was very hostile to immigration, hostile to multiculturalism, and a kind of white nationalist agenda, which which will be familiar um, in the US as well. But he was he always sat outside the Tory party. Now, once Brexit had happened, once the UK left the European Union, which happened sort of technically over the last year, but kind of officially at the beginning of 2021. In a way, Nigel Farage, he kind of has run out of a, of a purpose in politics. Now he has continued, he, he's a very articulate character. Uh, as I understand it, he has a little bit of a sort of following in the US on the kind of talk shows and he pops up on Fox News and places like that. So he's, he's, he's quite a kind of talented communicator, but he's sort of run out of things to talk about. So. He, he pops up, I mean, he's on YouTube promoting slightly kind of dodgy uh, investment products and things like that, which is, you know, interesting. He has also been trying to get a kind of, uh, a kind of popular movement going about fears over immigration. So you see him, obviously, we're an island nation. You see him in this little boat going up and down the English Channel, kind of trying to intercept immigrants as, as they come ashore. But I, I do slightly feel that that he's run out of road and, and, and not that I feel positively at all about Brexit, but maybe one of the very few positives might be that we we got rid of <laughs> Nigel Farage as a figure in our politics. <laughs> he's going to come here now. You've already presaged it. That's what's going to happen. He's going to be on Fox News and they're going to delight in the fact that this charming man with a British accent is spewing the same you know, propaganda well, that they- Well, it's, to... it, it is that thing, is it, you know, British actors, they always sort of pop up as the bad guys in Hollywood movies. So <laughs> presumably it's completely on brand to have a, a British guy up on Fox News talking talking nonsense, you know. 
it'll be good. It'll be good for their ratings. So yeah. I, we're going to get back to Brexit in a second, because that's something mm -hmm. else I want to ask you about. But I want to talk about the Queen for a second. Right. Um, I've had as a guest on my, on my show on Prevail, uh, Stuart Savray, who is the former senator from Jersey, from the Isle of Jersey. And he says the Queen and the royal family are actually much more powerful than they kind of like to let on. And my sense, you know, just going by what he's saying and kind of reading the tea leaves a little bit is that when it, it serves their purpose to, you know, be powerful, they're powerful. But when it serves their purpose to say, oh, no, 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 we're not allowed to do that because of decorum or rules or tradition or whatever, they do that too. So what is her actual role in your, in your view? Well, it, it's very interesting. She has, as you'll be well aware, you know, has been our head of state since 1952, which is just an incredible span of time. Think how many US presidents have passed through in sure. that period of time. And, and of course, the, the fundamental sort of issue, if you're going to have a constitutional monarchy, which, which you guys, you made a very clear decision, you weren't going to have that. But if you're going to do that, the monarch has to stay out of politics. So the queen in particular, more than any other member of, of the extended royal family, has succeeded in doing that. And to this day, you know, she's now well into her 90s. People still speculate about what her own personal political beliefs might be. You know, is she, obviously she, she comes from huge privilege, literally a thousand years of, of, of royal blood. But, but maybe, you know, some people speculate that she, she's quite a kind of liberal in, in her own personal inclinations. I, I genuinely, I don't think I have an opinion there. But what is interesting and I think challenging for anyone who is a believer in the monarchy in this country is that her son, Prince Charles, who, you know, has had the longest job interview in the world. He, he's now well into his 70s and he's waiting for the only job he's ever going to be allowed to have. He, he does appear to have political views. He, he is known to kind of uh, correspond with government ministers. Uh, he, he, again, has been uh, quite involved with kind of environmental questions uh, and, and also cultural questions, uh, often to do with sort of art, architecture, those kinds of issues. So I think that the challenge for a monarchy in the 21st century is that Everybody everywhere has opinions. You know, we have social media, we have all the 24-hour the news, we have all these things. And the Queen has, has been incredible because she has never, ever sort of allowed an opinion of hers to seep out. But it is, it is not hard to divine some of the opinions of her son, our next head of state. Um, and I think that in that lies a potential, I don't want to say a constitutional crisis, but certainly for us, a constitutional challenge about how how a non-political constitutional monarchy operates in the era of social media and 24-hour news. It's going to be interesting now. I, I, I'm not a monarchist myself, but I, th I think it's going to be fascinating when they have a coronation, just because they haven't had one since I think 53 was the coronation. So right. anybody that was even involved with that is probably is either dead or super duper old. They're going to have to just yeah. go with notes and all this stuff. And I thought the wedding was good TV. That's going to be good TV, you know. Well, right. I mean, that's the thing. It it it's amazing TV, and it and it taps. And even you know, I'm as a as a you know British British man. I I'm not a particularly kind of monarchist guy, but 
there's something about when they've all got their fancy clothes on and they're in the cathedral and you know these huge ceremonies that that it kind of it it most british people i think and a lot of people around the world feel this kind of sense of of kind of emotional connection it's a bizarre institution um you wouldn't create it if you were founding a new <laughs> democracy as you guys did but we have this institution and certainly in the personage of Queen Elizabeth II, I think the institution has sort of proved in, in the absence of any other better thing that it is the right institution for our country. But I, I make no assumptions about the longevity of the monarchy when it's not Queen Elizabeth. I think it will be very difficult. And this isn't even about the personalities individually, but it's about people who grew up in a different era. She, she grew up in a time when nobody was asking her personal opinion on anything. So she didn't come tainted with all these issues. Whereas Prince Charles, whatever one's opinion of him, he, he has grown up in an era when he's been interviewed hundreds of times. You know, his opinion on all kinds of things is there. And the media has become much more cynical in, in that period. So even if you're like a fervent monarchist, I think you would accept that it's much harder to be a king in the 21st century than it was to be a queen in the second half of the 20th century. I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. So talking about the queen and the lack of political positions, now I wanna go back to Brexit because right. I know that she's not supposed to say anything and that she, clearly her personality is such that she doesn't wanna say anything. She wants to be completely a blank. Um, and there's lots of good reasons for that. But I wonder about Brexit. I wonder if, if with Brexit, if, if that maybe should have been a case where she was like, you know what, I'm going to say something about this. Just because it's such an unprecedented uh, decision for the country. And if yep. she did come out, yay or nay, if it would have made a difference. I don't know. Do well, it's a very she... interesting question because in a way, there was a precedent. So um, David Cameron, who, you know, now is, is uh, particularly on those people in Britain who are of the pro-Europe side, he's kind of consigned to the dustbin of history as the man who brought the Brexit referendum. He held two referendums. And in a way, one of them may have been even bigger than Brexit. And that was a referendum on Scottish independence, which happened in 2014. Now, in the end, a majority of Scottish people voted to stay in the UK, but something amazing happened. And it's almost to contradict what I talked about just now. During that campaign, right at the end, when actually the polling was quite you know, evenly balanced, uh, the Queen made a kind of statement. Now, she, you know, she, 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 she's not been Queen for 70 years for nothing. She didn't, she didn't kind of lay it out. She didn't say, hey, Scotland, don't you dare vote for independence. But she just said she hoped that people would think very carefully as they made this big decision. And now I can't judge, obviously, whether or not that had an impact on individuals when they were inside the polling booth. But the Scottish people voted with a fairly clear margin to stay part of the UK. And, you know, this is very significant. This would have been the end of the country that exists as Britain that has existed since the beginning of the 1700s, you know, so 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 the the import of that referendum we, we we shouldn't kind of underestimate. Now, when it came to Brexit, the Queen didn't say anything, and as you rightly asked, Greg, you know, it, should she have made some kind of 
observation statement. Now, part of the thing is, it's not, I, I don't have a clear idea of wh where her views would have sat on this question. That was my, um, that was my thing, you know, where, where right. do you, yeah. And, and so if, if you try to make an assessment just based on kind of what the facts are in the open, open source, as it were, the queen, uh, clearly, you know, all the European royal families are related to each other. She's got German heritage. You know, the, the, the Russian royal family were her cousins before they were booted out. Um, the, 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 her late husband, Prince Philip, which was from the Greek royal family, were also distantly related. So on one level, you could say, well, she's completely European. All these, all these monarchs are interrelated. On the other hand, coming back to something we touched on earlier, the kind of traditional British conservative landowner hereditary elite in this country has often felt, partly because of being an island country, partly because of the English speaking world being geographically different to continental Europe, the English speaking world, of course, the US, Canada, Australia, you know, there is a sense in which people from the British elite have traditionally seen themselves as quite separate from Europe. And when the queen was a young queen, you know, she was very close to President Kennedy. She was close to Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, you know. So it may be when she looks at the people who influenced her in her early stage of her life, she doesn't think about continental Europe. I genuinely don't know the answer. I know that she speaks French well. I know that her husband, Prince Philip, he was a true European, born German, Greek. He had Danish heritage. You know, it, it's very hard to know. And, and one of the things that is, is very sad about the recent turn in British politics is the Europe question has become very, very toxic. So if there was any hint that the Queen sat on one side or the other of this debate, it we'll would be exploited, know <laughs> you know, in a way that is, it, it, it would be terribly disruptive. Brexit could be, I mean, could be the death knell of, of certainly the British Empire of Great Britain as this big superpower. We don't know what's going to happen, but you mentioned the sky forgot about the Scottish referendum. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. that, that, her, her coming, saying something about that and not about Brexit suggests to me that she, she kind of preferred to leave. But now maybe Scotland leaves to join the EU. No, yeah. it could, that could happen. It could and, well happen. And, and, and it would be a hundred percent thanks to Brexit. Right. Because ultimately the, the deal that Scotland had and, and, you know, it, it seems so mad now because, you know, the, the timing was not, was, was not very distant. But back in the time that the Scottish were voting to remain part of the UK, the prospect of the UK leaving the EU felt very distant. It, it did not seem like a serious idea. And so Scotland's view was, we are better off with the UK in the EU context. The, the, the deal is completely different now. When, right. If you're Scotland now, it, it feels like a very different proposition. Right. I, I know it has a lot to do with fisheries and stuff like that. So we, we don't need to get into the fisheries. I, I, no. <laughs> Who um, cares about fish? Right? But please, let, <laughs> please, let's not. Um, so I've done, since I started writing about Trump and covering this stuff, and, and also since I started doing this podcast, which is a, a later iteration of, of, of my work, I've learned a lot about Russia and money laundering and all this kind of stuff. So first of all, Bre Brexit is a Russian op. I, I think Bre the Brexit op and the Trump op are the same 
thing. I think Putin was trying to destabilize basically Western Europe by taking it to the two leaders of Western uh, of uh, of NATO, basically. Yeah. Um, so I'm seeing a lot. There's a lot of Russian money pouring into the city of London. People are calling it London grad. Yeah. Um, one of the big wealthy oligarchs owns what is it? The Chelsea football team. There's a lot of Russian money there. How big of a threat? And, and, and also there's there's Russian nationals coming to the UK and killing people in, yes. in sovereign British territory, which yes. that's that's kind of a Rubicon line that, that Putin now has it, crossed. It ought to be. It ought to be, yeah. How big a threat, in your view, is Putin to the UK? Well, I think he's a huge threat. And I think if you think about 2016 may have been... Putin's best year because yeah. he, he had two huge, you know, epic kind of Olympic gold medal successes. <laughs> he, he won the Brexit election. And then actually, you know, I, I don't I, I would never as, as a Brit make any assumptions about the influence of my country on a much bigger country, the USA. But it is certainly true that Donald Trump talked a lot about Brexit as a kind of case study about the, the improbable kind of populist nationalist message that, that, you know, don't let anyone tell you that people like us can't win. And, and, it, and it put a kind of fire into, you know, into the bellies of, of some of the people around Trump. So if you're Putin, 2016 was an incredible year. You got the Brexit vote and you got your man in the White House. Now, in terms of the specifics of what was going on in the UK, in terms of Russian influence, like all these things, some of it is very hard to put your finger on, but some things are absolutely clear. One is that a huge amount of Russian money has flowed through the city of London. And let's not forget that the city of London, which is, you know, financial district, just like Wall Street or whatever, is the kind of the, the front, is the vanguard of a much longer tail and the UK, the, the British Empire, to the extent that it exists at all anymore, exists in these strange little offshore finance territories, places like the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Jersey, mm -hmm. Isle of Man, whatever. All these little places that they're too small to be independent countries. So they remain under the British umbrella and they operate as offshore money laundromat hubs. And the, the city of London, because actually no, no banker wants to go and live on a little island somewhere. So they, they live in London. They do all their operations in London, but they might be operating with, with you know, uh, resources that are, that are domiciled in, in one of these offshore hubs. And Russian oligarchs have found this an incredibly attractive and useful platform for taking money out of Russia, money which has probably been illegally or certainly unethically acquired and laundering it through the British system. And you see it, whether it's prime property in central London, you know, beautiful old historic palaces effectively that are now being owned by these people, big football clubs, you know, premium uh, country properties, old manor houses, castles and so on. You know, this Russian money is coursing through the system, but it's also, it's the kind of concierge services that the British are, you know, very good at operating. So it's the high-end boarding schools, it's elite educational establishments, it is 
uh, some of the world's finest uh, lawyers who who charge you fifty thousand dollars a day, you know, for, for for their advice and so on. So Britain and particularly the professional classes in Britain have done very well out of the Russian criminal oligarch elite. But when it comes to the Brexit vote itself, we still don't know exactly what the extent of Russian influence was. And there's a very specific reason for this. The reason we don't know is because the government, the British government has never tasked MI5, which is you know our kind of equivalent of FBI, with investigating it. And this is a really important point because um, MI5 uh, is, is not identical with the FBI. It is not really a law enforcement body. It's, it's an internal intelligence agency. Uh, it can task itself to launch investigations into national security threats, but in in most cases, it's kind of waits to be asked because, of course, these things are politically sensitive. These things touch on all kinds of complex national interests. And there was an investigation carried out by the uh, Parliamentary Intelligence Committee, which is, I guess, is the equivalent to the kind of House Intelligence Committee. Um, and what they identified was this point that it wasn't that the British intelligence agencies had not found evidence of Russian interference in the Brexit uh, referendum. It was that they'd never been asked to look for it. But there are little pointers, there are, there are you know, little chinks of light in this kind of dark, uh, dark sheet, which help us to, to sort of understand. So one or two things. So Aaron Banks, Aaron Banks is a British businessman. He's a you know, millionaire, high net worth guy runs, uh, owns some insurance businesses. It's not clear exactly how, what his net worth might be, but he is uh, one of the highest ever donors in, in a, a political donor in the history of Britain. Uh, so the, the donations he's made puts him right at the top layer. Now, he, he is a huge advocate of Brexit. He, he, the donations he made were specifically to to achieve the outcome of Brexit. Aaron Banks has also a very close relationship with Russia. He, it's, it's on the record that he was being offered business opportunities by Russia's ambassador in London. His wife is a Russian national. He has all kinds of those kinds of connections. So that's just one little data point. There are other data points. There were, there were connections between aspects of the Brexit campaign and individuals at the Russian embassy. There were connections that are remain to this day unexplained about who funded some of the biggest publicity campaigns in support of Brexit. And of course, there's the basic point that you weaken the EU by removing Europe's largest military power, the UK, out of the EU. Europe's most traditionally the most hawkish, the most Atlanticist member of the EU. So one of the real kind of tragedies of the Brexit story is that as a country, we, the UK, have not actually found the kind of political determination to understand what lay at the heart of it, you know, what, what were the underlying issues. And, and you mentioned, Greg, earlier, you know, Boris Johnson has these relationships. He has yeah relationships with major Russian oligarch figures, the, the Lebedev family, 
the father, again, the, you know, this is all public information, was a, was a KGB officer posted in London back in the, I think, the 1990s. His son, Sergei, is now a member of the House of Lords. He, he is a legislator, a legislator for life under our rather quirky laws, and he's the son of a of a Russian intelligence officer. So that these are very interesting, uh, you know, case studies, and, and I think a lot of people don't really feel that they understand what lies at the heart of these things. Well, unfortunately, here in the United States, we now know what it feels like when the governing bodies don't want to investigate something that should be investigated. Um, right. You know, we're, we're, right. we're falling prey to that too. Yeah. And I hope that more, more investigations happen because I, I, I do feel like all this stuff, as anyone listening to this podcast well knows, I do feel like this stuff is a threat and that Russia is trying to divide Britain and the United States and, and, oh, and totally. weaken all of us, which threatens then the Pax Americana, which in, in the wake of World War II has kept us all relatively peaceful and prosperous since, uh, you know, 1945. So with that said, that's the end of my round of questions that are general. So okay. we're going to be right back with Arthur Snell, and we're going to talk about you. So stick around. All right. All right, we're back with Arthur Snell. Now I want to talk about your personal experience because it's really fascinating. In your time at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you were posted to Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Yemen, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and then to Trinidad and Tobago, where you were the High Commissioner. You're also the Deputy Head of Counterterrorism at the FCO, and yet you're somehow younger than I am. I feel like I've just, I, I, I don't know, I've been mis, misusing my time here. In, well, I, in I started in high school, you know. That. <laughs> So of all the places that you've been, what's your what's your favorite? I, I would guess Yemen based on an interview that I heard of you. But well, you're absolutely right, Greg. Yes. Yemen. Yemen, uh, of course, now in 2021, people hear Yemen and they think of starvation, civil war, uh, disease, uh, children dying in the thousands. And, and it's a terrible tragedy. But Yemen is an amazing country. For those who are not very familiar, it's the southern shore of the Arabian Peninsula. It's a country with an amazing history. It has beautiful architecture. It has a mosaic of different cultures within that one country. It has an incredible history. And it also has uh, landscapes that you would, they're almost like kind of landscapes you see in a, in a Star Wars movie, you know, incredible mountains, canyons, wildlife, you name it. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. I was very lucky to live there at a time of relative stability. I mean, Yemen has always faced these, these challenges of, of kind of internal strife. But I was able to travel around the country to see a lot of its kind of majestic beauty. And, and, and it remains, a, a, has a very kind of powerful hold on me. Sounds great. Yeah. I hope everything settles so we're one day able to travel to these places. Well, yeah, I mean, it, Yemen is, is totally, it, it, it's kind of like, it's the place that tourism needs to discover. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to tell anyone to try going there now, but it, it really is a place that 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 would, in another parallel universe, be an amazing kind of tourism hub because it, it has so much to offer. Interesting. So I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought that the, the topography was so interesting. Now, Zimbabwe, before you got there, suffered through one of the worst bouts of hyperinflation. Uh, since basically the days after the Second World War, yeah. 
hyperinflation is when the uh, the inflation percentage is so great that they have to keep printing more and more money of higher and higher denominations. They wound up printing $100 trillion uh, bills, which is the highest denominated bill ever that was in circulation. And eventually the, the, the whole money system collapsed and they had to just use the South African rand and a combination of foreign currencies, which I think was that the case when you were there? They, they have yeah, no so currency. It was there? just kind of unfolding. So it was um, you definitely wanted to use a, a foreign currency, US dollar, UK pound, South African, whatever. And and it 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 was an extraordinary tragedy. You had people, you know, polit corrupt political leaders who themselves had access to hard currency. Uh, lying to the populace, saying, you know, the Zimbabwe dollar, we can all be proud, kind of creating this kind of fake nationalism story. But effectively, you know, they just printed money to the point that it became as worthless as toy money in a Monopoly board game. You know, it, it, it was just useless paper. And it, and it was an entirely political um, activity because Zimbabwe, it's not a hugely wealthy country, but it's a country that has uh you know assets it can export it has gold it has diamonds it, it's an exporter of tobacco and other agribusiness products so there's no reason why their currency should be worthless but in the end a a corrupt and cynical government made it worthless and that, and that was tragic so afghanistan you're in afghanistan and afghanistan is it, it's really a tricky place i've done a lot of reading on it because i was, was writing a novel that i was going to I needed information about. So I, I read some scholarly books on Afghanistan, one called The Fragmentation of Afghanistan. And well, before I get to that, the, 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 I was reading a while ago, the first Sherlock Holmes novel. Right. And Watson in the Sherlock Holmes book comes home from Afghanistan where he's he a soldier. He's been wounded yes. in the war in Afghanistan. So you're reading this like, oh my God, when did he write this? And yeah. you, you know, we tend to forget that uh, the British lost badly in Afghanistan. That's right. We, we, we'd been there before, you know, yeah. you, you might say we didn't learn our lesson. <laughs> <laughs> they call, I mean, they call the place the graveyard of empires. So, I mean, yeah. traditionally across the board, I, uh, Alexander the Great couldn't get in there and conquer it. Britain couldn't do it. The Russians could, uh, then the Soviet Union couldn't do it. They, they, they collapsed because of Afghanistan. Obviously the United States is now pulling out of Afghanistan. In this book, The Fragmentation of Afghanistan, what I read was that the situation there was so chaotic, or, or not even chaotic, anarchic, where it's just this chaos of, of women being raped all the time and just horrible bloodshed and weird tribal wars. So that when the Taliban took over, as horrible as the Taliban were, life actually improved because they protected the, the women and they got rid of the, the drugs. And yeah. it, it's hard to really wrap your mind around that when you're... Uh, it, sitting comfortably in a, in a Western country. You were in Helmand province, which is the most dangerous place to be there. Yeah. Um, so how do you view the war effort now? And what do you think the West should do going forward? What, what's your thoughts? Well, I think, I think the place to start is back in 2001. And obviously, you know, the 9-11 attacks, devastating mass murder on US soil, New York, Washington, and so on. Uh, it was both understandable and also appropriate that the US took some action. Absolutely. And it is, I think you can argue, let, you know, that was September 2001. You could argue that by December, the US had actually finished the job that it needed to do, i.e. you need to ensure that no terrorist entity 
could ever again carry out that sort of attack with that level of devastation on the homeland of the United States. And in a way, it, it seems to me, and I say this with hindsight, because you know, so many people were in that scenario uh, alongside me. I was just one of thousands, literally, of, of foreign advisors and, and you know, others. You could argue that ever since about January the 1st, 2002, until now, we've been kind of chasing our own tails. And I say we, NATO, the West, largely the US, but also the UK, Canada, you know, its largest overseas commitments have been there. Every country you might choose to kind of name has been there in some way. Um, because part of the problem is once you've uh, kind of removed Al Qaeda from the battle space and pushed the Taliban out of the major cities, and as I say, that was achieved within a very short space of time at the end of 2001, then you get stuck in a much more complicated debate question, which is a decades long question about who controls Afghanistan, what their values are, and you know, how that relates to the regional powers. So one of the key questions here is Pakistan. Pakistan has for decades, ever since the 1990s, been the key supporter of the Taliban. Now, the reason they've done that because they see it as a strategic counterweight to the ever-growing rise of India as both an economic and a military power in South Asia. So the problem that we have, and I remember this very acutely during the George W. Bush era, was that you had Pakistan incredibly helpful and supportive to the US on counterterrorism, literally to the point of offering up key members of Al-Qaeda, at the same time as supplying the Taliban with weapons, logistic support, intelligence, you name it. And of course, you know, when under President Obama, the CIA and SEAL Team 6 finally located and, and uh, neutralized Osama bin Laden, they found him in Pakistan, in, in a city basically run by the Pakistani army. And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that he was there literally at the behest of the Pakistan military. But you, you start to see this kind of double game that was played very successfully by the Pakistanis over a 20 year period. But then returning to Afghanistan, you know, what is it we want to achieve? You've, you've talked very, uh, you know, movingly about the plight of women in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, to be a woman, particularly in a rural Pashtun dominated area of Afghanistan, is to, is to live a nightmare according to anything that I would understand as, as a father of a teenage daughter or anyone living in the West that has respect for women's rights. But we as Western countries, I think have demonstrated comprehensively that we have no way to change that situation. I mean, we've literally thrown trillions of dollars at the problem. We have lost thousands of, of brave soldiers uh, you know, in, in stabilization and other operations. We, we, have, we have tried every type of development aid, humanitarian aid, all these things. I'm not saying that we should just walk away and let the place sink, but I think we have to recognize that the attempt to create a liberal democracy based on Western values is not going to succeed. Maybe it might happen in 50, 100 years, I don't know, but it is not gonna succeed now and we have to recognize that. And, and if I think back, just to sort of finish here, if I think back, I was in Afghanistan roughly 10 years after 9-11, sort of 2010, 2011. 
we were still talking about how securing Afghanistan was about securing London, New York, Washington, DC. And that was actually not true. Securing the big cities of the West was something that happened in 2001 in, in a very limited and very successful series of special operations. The years that followed was a, was a, a series of displacement activities that ultimately have not produced an outcome that, you know, that, that, is, that is useful to Western countries. Hmm. Hopefully we learned the lesson, but we, we never seem to learn the lesson. We don't seem to learn very well because, you know, whilst, you know, Iraq followed Afghanistan, but the, the thing that to me is, is very striking is that in, in 2011, at a point when surely these lessons could have been learned, uh, you know, we piled into Libya and now Libya is in a state of chaos. It is effectively split into sort of two kind of statelets, uh, all of the things that should have been obvious from the, the situation in Iraq and the situation in Afghanistan appear, I'm not saying they're identical, but so many lessons appear to be relevant from the situation in Libya, and yet the same mistakes were made. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about the first Gulf War, because mm. At that time, I was a I was a senior in high school, and I just turned eighteen. And everyone was like, right. "Oh no, we're going to get drafted and go to this." I mean, that obviously didn't happen. But so I wasn't really equipped, I think, to look at it from a geopolitical sense. But yeah. now, I think, especially now, looking at at our, the situation in Iraq and in Afghanistan and these wars that never seem to end, um, and also with Putin in the Crimea going yeah. into Ukraine. What happened in the first Gulf War was that Saddam Hussein invaded a foreign country in Kuwait, mostly to because he didn't want to pay them the money he owed them. And yeah. NATO, you know, whoever it was, the Allied coalition that George H.W. Bush formed together said, no, you're not allowed to do that. We went in, sent him back to Iraq, and that was it. And then that, that ended his territorial ambitions. He was still there, which was sucked if you lived in Iraq. I'm sure. But on the other hand, when you get rid of the guy, we see now what what happened. So it's 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 really a damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, none of the options are pretty. I agree. We had no business going to Iraq anyway. I think they just I think that Bush's guys just wanted to do it and for some reason take him out. But there was a lot of talk at the time because the borders in the Middle East anyway are drawn up after the First World War and they're not really, I, I, what I've read, like Mosul has more in common with Damascus than it does with Iraq. There's sure. a lot of yeah, war yeah. there. There was some talk of let's, that Iraq really should be three different countries with Kurdistan yeah. of the North and this and that. Do you think that was, I, and we didn't do it because I think because of Turkey mostly. What do you think is the solution there ultimately? Does that make any sense? What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think I think you've touched on on those a range of very important points. And, and, you know, I spent a lot of my career in, in the kind of Middle East region. I'm, I'm actually an Arabic speaker. So I sort of, that helped me integrate myself with, with, with that part of the world. There is an issue about uh, kind of, I don't want to say fake borders because, you know, they're real to the people that live there, but, but, but countries that, that maybe lack a certain level of, of kind of, integrity in, in, in the minds of the people that live there. But having said that, something that struck me, particularly in my time working in Iraq, is how nationalist a lot of Iraqis are. They, they feel very strongly that 
you know, it may only be a country that's existed for about sort of 80 years, roughly, but people feel quite strongly that this is a real country and, and, and we feel seriously about it. So I think, I think the, you know, your mentioning of the, the first Gulf War, the 91 Gulf War is very important because I think that was literally the high point of the kind of the Western Atlantic Alliance. Well, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it won the Cold War. It then proved that it could, it could destroy what was supposedly a serious army, maybe not Russia, but it was still a serious army and it destroyed them in about three hours. You know, I mean, it was, it, yeah. it, it, it was a cakewalk. Um, and it's almost as if, that was the problem that the ease of that victory allowed a kind of level of hubris and misunderstanding and i'm not just talking about america but across western countries um and i think that led to two things one was that the western countries became increasingly distracted by sub-state challenges so obviously one of those was terrorism and, and it is not, I, I don't say this in any way to suggest that the problem of terrorism was, was trivial because by definition, what happened at the 9-11 attacks was, was nothing, but, you know, nothing but epic. You know, it, it was an incredible and awful attack on, on America's soil, both in terms of loss of life, but in terms of the, you know, the violation of, of America's sovereignty. But I think that countries in the Western Alliance and, and, and America particularly failed to keep an eye on wider issues that mattered. And so during the period that America, Britain, to some extent, you know, Australia, France, a range of kind of NATO Western allies were getting stuck with these kind of endless uh, counterinsurgency struggles and ultimately not winning you know we, we we were not winning those fights partly because we didn't know what the end state was we didn't know what we wanted to win but while that was going on russia and china in particular were learning lessons they were looking at how we failed they were looking at the weaknesses of their own you know their own militaries let's not forget that the iraqi military was very very close to russia it had a kind of soviet uh kind of conception of operations and that China also had various links to quite a lot of the sort of the old players in the Middle East. So you had a lot of a lot of um, work that was going on in Russia and China looking at the West struggles and thinking well what do we learn from this you know what are the weaknesses what are the kind of strategic gains that might come out of this and so while we were kind of battling these these sort of ankle level problems, which, you know, again, I'm not trivializing, but they were issues that they were not strategic existential threats to our countries. Right. You had two global powers slowly building up. And Russia, you could argue 2014 was their moment when they struck, you know, they took Crimea and they took it in a way that was, was a, was a, basically a brilliant special forces operation. People weren't sure, is this an invasion or is it some kind of weird political (laughs) demonstration? But at the end of the day, Crimea is now controlled by Russia. They've built a bridge onto mainland Russia. You know, who knows how that ends? But right now, Ukraine has no serious means of regaining that territory. At the same time, China, China recognized its weaknesses in terms of its Navy and it's created 
a blue water navy. So for the first time basically in China's history, which as we know is thousands of years, they have a globally effective naval force that can counteract the United States Navy uh, almost anywhere. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, I'm not one of these people that thinks that somehow the US has kind of lost already. You know, the US still has the world's greatest military by some distance. And, and, and a lot has to happen for that to change. But we, we have, as Western countries, I think wasted a lot of time and effort pursuing threats that are partly threats of our own making. You know, we, if we hadn't invaded Iraq, well, maybe half the terrorists that have existed in Western Europe wouldn't have existed. I mean, you know, and again, that is not to justify any of these actions, but just to be realistic about, you know, what the underlying causes are. No, I think I think you're right. I think that the, you know, obviously, as you say, we don't want to trivia. I, I was in New York City on 9-11. Right. So I'm, I'm the last person that's going to trivialize what they did. Yeah. But yeah. that wasn't something that was this pervasive. School shootings are a problem because they happen all the time in the United States. Yeah. Terrorists flying airplanes into tall buildings in New York City is ha- something that happened once and is very unlikely to happen again yeah. in light of all of the security yes. measures that were put in place. After. Right. Meanwhile, transactional organized crime continues apace. Yeah. And one of the one of the main effects of 9-11 was that the entire or, or, or the, the lion's share of the intelligence apparatus and the the law enforcement apparatus, the United States went from focusing on organized crime and started focusing on terrorism instead yeah. to uh, right now we're feeling the effects of that because yes. the, the, the criminal forces are su- super powerful right now Absolutely. and indeed threaten, uh, threaten Britain and the United States both in, in mm. a way that, that Osama bin Laden could only have dreamed about. Um, yeah. and, and, oh, and the other point I wanted to make what you said about Crimea, H.W. Bush you know, say what you will, it worked. Yes. They threw, we threw Hussein out. We threw Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and that was it. Yeah. Vladimir Putin goes into Crimea. No one does anything. And, and I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. When the Soviet Union disintegrated or dissolved in, in 91, Ukraine had more nuclear weapons than any country in the world, except for the United States and Russia, more than yeah. Great Britain even. And yes. we made them give them up. Yeah, yeah. With the agreement that we would help them if they needed help. Yeah. And then when Russia comes in and invades, what do we do? Eh, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Slap it, some sanctions it's in the on. two difficult box. And of course, I mean, the the uh, the extraordinary kind of um, ongoing trajectory of the Ukraine story. When you think about what was happening last year, you had Rudy Giuliani knocking around Ukraine, literally mm-hmm. trying to gather uh, fake intelligence, misinformation, disinformation about President Biden's family uh, from people who are, have been identified by the US government as agents of Russian intelligence. I mean, that's an extraordinary. So it's not just that Russia was able to occupy part of the territory of a significant European country called Ukraine, but it was that this was part of a wider strategic uh, kind of operation by Russia, which reached all the way into uh, the absolute pinnacle of U.S. politics. Yeah, no, it's a it's a crazy head shaking kind of thing. Yeah. Um, getting getting away from the the, the doom and gloom for a second. Okay. So j- just to continue along with, with with your resume, so you went to Trinidad. That's a promotion because yes. you're the high commissioner. But it also felt a little bit like 
let's put this guy somewhere where maybe he won't get killed. You know. Well, that was uh, I, there was a bit of that. So, so uh, an important point to to note, which is which is probably not in my resume, uh, is that I uh, so I I had had these a series of jobs, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, so on, in in effectively conflict zones where you know as 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 anyone would in in the US or UK, you, you go there as, as a single person, whether or not you have a wife or husband or whatever. Um, and I had reached a stage in my life where very happily I'd got married, we had a little little child, and I actually wanted for, for a change to live in the same country, maybe even the same city as the rest of my family. So that seemed like an objective. <laughs> so Tr Trinidad offered me that chance. For those that are not familiar, you know, Trinidad and Tobago, it's a a small Caribbean island. It, it's a country that has very historic links to the UK, but of course these days much more culturally and geographically connected to North America. It's kind of like a mini Jamaica. It has a lot of the good things that Jamaica has. It has a really interesting culture, amazing music, wonderful food, but it also has violent crime, high homicide rates, organized crime, and, and some of the issues to do with you know, complex kind of family challenges that I think have have been seen across the Caribbean region. So it's a fascinating, wonderful country. We had a wonderful time there. And, and yeah, I, I was very, very happy to, 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 to have the opportunity to serve there. And, and it's not a money laundering center because I looked it up because I was going to ask you and no, it's not. So maybe no, it was. Not really. it, yeah, so, so Trinidad is, um, is actually after the USA, it is historically um, one of the first places in the world to be involved in the commercial extraction of oil. So literally back, so I think Texas got there first in like the 1890s and Trinidad was like 1900 or something. But it, within the British Empire, which was you know going on at that time, it became a very significant place. It, it doesn't seem very plausible for a small island, but it genuinely was a significant place for the uh, extraction uh, and development of hydrocarbons. And during World War II, uh, it was very important to the British Empire that Trinidad would pump oil and ship it across the Atlantic to supply all, all that was going on with the war in Europe. So uh, Trinidad has not been much of a kind of tourist destination, not much of a financial hub, but remains something of a kind of uh, industrial chemical energy uh, economy. Was it, was it World War II that Winston Churchill decided to take the Royal Navy off coal and put it on oil? Or am I well, it was, a, it was a bit earlier, but interestingly, um, during World War II, uh, the, the American military put themselves in Trinidad because it was seen as important to secure that bit of geography in order to ensure the, the, the ongoing supply of, of oil to the, you know, the various navies of the allies around the world interesting yeah. we also had we also had spies in bermuda checking on the abdicated king by the way well i'm, I'm glad that someone needed to check on him <laughs> <laughs> okay so you're now now you're at orbis business intelligence yeah which listeners will recognize because that's christopher Steele's joint it is okay now it's a risk consultancy that's what it says yeah what now what does that mean exactly Sure. So um, what we do, we're, we're in a, I guess, a relatively sort of obscure corner of the professional services world. You know, 
the, particularly in you know US, UK, Western economies, there are plenty of people who are paid to advise businesses on what they're doing. You might pay a lawyer to advise you on your legal issues. You might pay an accountant to advise you on your you know, financial tax compliance. Our specialism is to advise people on political and regulatory risk. So that sounds a bit uh, kind of obscure, but what I mean is if a big international company has made an investment in an emerging market somewhere in Africa, for example, there are going to be all kinds of risks that are not easy to get a handle on. So let's say you're a mining business, well, is the Minister of, Industry, of Minerals in that country notoriously corrupt? And so there's an expectation that your business will be paying some kind of backhander. Or is there a risk of sanctions? You know, these days, sanctions are a very significant issue that you might be uh, a completely legitimate and uh, compliant business operating to the highest standards, but something that you are involved with has a co-ownership with, let's say, a Russian business that you have no control over that has been sanctioned for its involvement in the war in Ukraine. So as a kind of um, consultancy, a business intelligence consultancy, what we specialize in doing is helping people understand the risks to their business. And sometimes we come after a problem has erupted and we help people find out what has gone wrong. So we, 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 we have people around the place, you know, people like myself who've worked in different countries, we have good networks that we can pick up the phone, we can go and meet people, we can kind of get a little understanding kind of slightly under the surface of some of the challenges that, that people face. Has business been booming since uh, the, the, the dossier came out or? Right. Or- you know, has it been well, good? It's, it's a great question. And, and I think so. I mean, obviously, that the reason that Orbis is has become better known than it was, you know, five years ago, is because a project that we undertook, which which commercially was not very important to our business, turned out to be politically very important. And this was a project to look at the Russian connections of the person who eventually became President Donald Trump at the time he was just a candidate. And I, and I should you know, reiterate for your listeners that a couple of things w- which uh, are maybe obvious, but but have been sometimes misunderstood, that we took this project on back, back in the day, I think it was 2015, 2016 originally, uh, at a time when uh, Donald Trump was one of a very wide field of Republican candidates that right at the beginning of this process, uh, the people who wanted to understand about Trump's links to Russia were actually other Republicans, albeit that then transferred on to the Clinton campaign. Uh, and that we did this work from a completely nonpartisan perspective. So a lot of people have targeted my colleague Chris Steele and have assumed that he is somehow a kind of operative in the US political system. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Chris Steele, he's a British guy, he's never lived in America. He, I, you know, by definition, he has no way to vote in America. And uh, we approach this project like any other kind of professional project that our ability to extract and identify kind of interesting information that might not be available to others and give that to our clients. That's what we bring to the table. So we were doing that just as we would with any other project. We were not trying to kind of shade the issue. Now, I... I'm the be the first to accept that 
there are literally millions of people in America who would just reject absolutely what I've just said and would assume, unfortunately, because of the kind of partisan political situation, that we're part of some kind of, you know, corrupt disinformation project. But coming back to your question, Greg, has it helped or hindered our business? I think what it's done is it has put us in a certain place. We didn't choose to be in that place. You know, we, like I say, we, we never chose to take sides in US politics. But having said that, I think that uh, two things kind of came out of that dossier project. One was that in spite of an incredible effort by Trump and his supporters to discredit Chris Steele's work and the work of Orbis Business Intelligence, the fundamental findings from the dossier, the, the so-called Trump dossier, have actually been borne out. And let's just quickly go through those. So the first thing was that the Russians were interfering in the 2016 election. There's no debate about that anymore. Nope. That is now absolutely has been demonstrated, including the Senate Intelligence, the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee. Second Absolutely. point was that it was Putin was directing this. And again, that the Mueller inquiry, the Senate Intelligence Committee, there's so much evidence for that, it hardly needs saying. But back in 2016, no one knew this, right? The third thing is that this intervention, this interference directed by Putin was being done to promote the candidacy of Donald Trump. Again, this is now absolutely beyond any question. It has been demonstrated by a, a wide array of subsequent investigations. But in 2016, nobody knew this. Po possibly one or two people deep inside the US intelligence community, but that nobody in the public world knew this. And then the fourth thing, which I think is sort of the key, the four key findings, was that elements of the Trump campaign were actively colluding, cooperating, whatever term of, of art we might use with those efforts. So let's just take the very, very straightforward example. Manafort, Paul Manafort was in direct connection with Konstantin Kalimnik, who has been clearly demonstrated to be a Russian intelligence operative. Now, a lot of your listeners will be completely on board with these things, you know, no debate about it. But it's important to restate that because I think there has been, as I say, an extraordinary effort to try to discredit this work to suggest that somehow what Orbis did was itself a Russian disinformation operation, which is completely untrue. Um, whereas what I would say is that back in 2016, if we could all get in a time machine, go back there, and we would be told those four facts, you know, you'd fall off your chair, you wouldn't believe it was possible. And it's only, you know, what's happened since then has kind of uh, has changed the way we look at these things. So the effect it's had on our business, it has had an effect of, of kind of, you know, being split into this sort of slightly partisan uh, divide. But I think that's, that's actually the way America is now. I, I don't say that with any pleasure. I have no problem with the Republican Party. I personally am I'm probably on the liberal side of politics, but it doesn't matter to me. Uh, you know, I don't, when we as a business cooperate with our clients, we don't ask them about their political leanings. But I think what's happened is that, you know, this kind of division has appeared. The only final point I'd make is that it does seem to me that the mainstream of the US business community has, has kind of tried to distance itself from Trump, particularly after the events of the 6th of January. So uh, I'm not sure that it's a bad thing that 
uh, we are we have been seen very negatively by kind of very you know strong Trump partisans. Not that that's something that we chose. Uh, on behalf of um, freedom-loving patriotic Americans, I just <laughs> you know I I tip my hat to you guys, and I hope that your your partner there uh, stays safe because this is important work and we're grateful for it. I mean, we those of us who were trying to figure out what was happening from a relatively early period of time relied yeah. on that extensively. And as you say, uh, it bore out. I think one of the problems that the, that the media made, obviously the, the, we call it the dossier. It's a series of, of intelligence reports, which were never meant to be made public in the way that exactly. they were. And we can exactly. argue until the cows come home about whether or not that was a good idea to reveal this entire thing uh, in its entirety. But the mainstream media, you know, you put a, a salient or, um, you know, lascivious detail, lurid detail uh, on the, I think it's the first the first or the second page of this document. That's all they're going to pay attention to. They've got their right. story. It's over after that. They're not going to keep reading, which is, um, you know, that's the sad state of the mainstream media in, in this country, which the, the line between news and entertainment is, is just completely blurred. But um, as I said, we, 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 we're, we're pro uh, Chris Steele on this podcast, certainly. So um, well, I'm very glad to hear it. And, and just to say that, you know, we um, obviously the, the recent the year of the coronavirus, and everything else has, has not made it easy for anyone from from Britain to, to come to America and so on. But uh, particularly, you know, now that President Trump is no, no longer in office, he's no longer able to manipulate uh, the, the, the law enforcement and other agencies there. We remain totally engaged with America as all of us in the, the management of the company are former officials. So by definition, our entire working life, we've been working with Americans in the field, in Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever. And, and we're, you know, for, it's, it's, it's our old ally for, for all the reasons that, that we know about. So, so we, we haven't gone away from America and, um, you know, it, in the fullness of time, we, we, we plan to spend more time on the other side of the pond. We have, uh, we have a good president now. We're, we're, we're coming back. We're, we'll be yeah. okay. Well, well okay. he's in England this week. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His first visit. He arrived today. Is that wait? Is he is he meeting the Queen? I think he's meeting the Queen, right? Is he yeah, he's the meeting the Queen. I think tomorrow or something. So we're, nine June today. I've seen I've seen the footage. They've touched down in the UK. He went first to a an Air Force base where a lot of U.S. Um, servicemen and women are are based, which of course is completely appropriate. Uh, I, I know he's meeting the Queen. I can't remember if he's doing that before the G7 summit or after, but it's all it's all happening in the next couple of days. So it's you know it's exciting few days here. Yeah. Well, by the time uh, listeners are listening to this, we'll know if if, yeah. if Biden It'll says something nasty history. to Putin. I I sure hope he does. <laughs> um, okay, two more quick questions, and then mm -hmm. and then I'll release because it's very it's it's late where you are. Um, okay, I, I know you can't say too much here, but Chris Steele, what's Chris Steele like? Is he like James Bond, cool kind of guy? Is he like a geek? Like what? What's his deal? Well, I think he's sort of halfway between the two. He's um, he's he's a highly highly intelligent man. He has devoted his professional life to the kind of study and the understanding of Russia, and he does that from a perspective of somebody who who loves. Russia and its culture. And of course, Russia is an incredible global civilization, you know, that has given the world, you know, the music of Tchaikovsky, the literature of Tolstoy, and I could go on. And if Chris were here, he'd say more than I could. Um, 
So he's somebody who is deeply kind of intellectually engaged, but he's a, you know, he's a serious intelligence operative. His career speaks for itself. And, and he's somebody who, who definitely would, is not, uh, you know, is not in, interested in kind of cheap kind of media, um, you know, showbiz politics. And in a way, I think, um, you know, one, something that, that is very unfortunate about the, the events of the Trump era is the attempt to try to paint him as a kind of political hack, as a partisan operative. By definition, like a lot of people in this country, myself included, we believe very strongly in the Atlantic Alliance, whoever's in the White House, because ultimately, you know, we have so much that connects our two countries that, that we've both seen on this, this podcast, for example. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's not about, uh, you know, every country has politics, every country has political parties, campaigns, all that, I get that. But, but you know, nobody in Orbis, and certainly not Chris Steele, ever would have dreamed of doing something to damage the United States. His objective was always to protect the United States, and I think ultimately, history will judge him for having done that. Oh yeah, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any question that he, he sort of went above and beyond doing that. So yeah. as I said before, we, 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 uh, we are grateful, at least I am. I speak for <laughs> people listening here too. So uh, yeah. Arthur Snell, this has been such a fascinating uh, discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate well, well, th it. Well, thanks for having me. And, and uh, you know, like all these things in 2021, I'm, I'm sorry we had to do it over a, over a Zoom call, not in person. But, you know, if you're ever in, in the UK or if I'm ever in, in, uh, in your side of the pond, you know, we, we must uh, meet in person. I would very much enjoy that. Yes, 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 yes. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, and Ryan Byrne, History Falls Apart. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Visit gregoliar.com, G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, drive safely, and don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.